You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori. Today, I have with me Scott Carney, investigative journalist and anthropologist, as well as the author of the New York Times bestseller, What Doesn't Kill Us. Hey, Scott. Hey there. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being here. And I also have Dr. Jason Micklian, senior researcher at the Center for Development and Environment at the University of Oslo. Hi, Jason. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. It's my pleasure. I wanted to do more episodes on geopolitics and climate change. So I was really happy to have this book land in my lap. Uh, you are the co-authors of The Vortex, A True Story of History's Deadliest Storm, An Unspeakable War and Liberation. So I think in order to set the stage, I don't think people know a lot about post-World War II South Asia. I'm making that assumption. Maybe it's wrong, but I think it's a fine place to start. People probably know a little bit about the British Raj and, and Gandhi. If you're a little farther east, maybe they've seen Bridge on the River Kwai or the Red Burmese Days or something like that. But I don't think partition and everything after that is very well known. I think the only things that I really know about it is I read Kushwant Singh's Train to Pakistan some years ago. Beyond that, I know basically what's contained in this book and nothing else. So I'm going to make that wow. assumption for our audience, and maybe you could set the stage a little bit for us, what the world looks like in this region after World War II. Man, I do think that the world would be a better place if everyone had read Kushwant Singh's works in general. So that's great. I would say that probably most people aren't super familiar with what happened and we'll give a, just a very brief historical overview of where South Asia was in 1970. You know, in 1947, India, which used to be, you know, under British control, partitioned into two major parts, right? There was India, where it was a Hindu majority country, and then Pakistan, which was a Muslim majority country. At least a million people died as they fled to either side of Pakistan and into India. And that's what actually Train to Pakistan's about. But, you know, when Pakistan came into existence, they split it solely on religious lines. And that actually made Pakistan a divided country when it first came into creation, where there was East Pakistan, which is present day Bangladesh, and West Pakistan, which is present day Pakistan, were actually one country divided by what who soon became their mortal enemy, India, in the middle of them. And Pakistan more or less treated the Bengali-speaking East Pakistan as a colonial fiefdom, much like the British used to treat India. And they were just hijacking resources out of there for close to 20 years before we this, this book begins. So that's sort of the, the geopolitical landscape of what that looked like. I think there's also, maybe we can introduce this later, but the Cold War dynamics of this are massively influential for how this all plays out. Why was it chosen to partition like this? Pakistan has Punjabis, has Baluchis, has Pashtus. It has, you know, many, many ethnic groups inside of it, but they're generally Islamic in general. So then the decision was made just on religious lines to lump the Muslims of Bangladesh and Pakistan together for governance reasons? Yes, exactly. Um, and it was a terrible idea. You know, this was when the British policy of divide and rule, which had ruled in that area for almost 300 years, the British were always setting one community against another community, whether it was like Hindus versus Muslims or Rajputs versus Kshatriyas or these, uh, these various groups in India, they were always backing one in order to beat up another. And th that sort of, those politics played out in the years prior to partition so that they wanted to 
essentially they had internalized it. And even though Islamic and Hindu communities had had been, you know, coexisting for, you know, eons in India, these politics sort of went out of control. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds. I'm trying not to get into the weeds, but essentially, <laughs> you know, there was a, a movement by the leaders of, of what became Pakistan and the leaders of uh, what became India to divide their political centers. Jason, do you have any context you'd like to add before we just start at the beginning of the book? Yeah, I, I think that what we've talked about so far is just we, we don't talk about it too much in the book, actually, because of the exact reasons that Scott mentions. This is a really big and a really complicated issue. And it was it was driven by the fact that the British were actually trying to reduce violence. But, you know, as a peace and conflict scholar, you see this many different places around the world where if you start dividing up arbitrary lines between people, between ethnicities, it can actually create a lot more violence down the line. So one of the hardest paragraphs that I think we had to write in the entire book was to distill all of these 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of history into one quick paragraph. <laughs> and it, it was, uh, it, I think it's one that we wrote and rewrote like 15 different times. So, but, but and this is, this is all to say, if you're interested in that portion of it, there are probably a dozen different fantastic books, both fiction and nonfiction, that address the particularities of why India was divided in the way it was. But for us and for this book, it's just that historical background that helps to explain why the situation was what it was when we launched into the book in 1968. Why frame this book as one about climate emergency or climate crisis? Yeah, so in 1970, the deadliest storm in human history, which is the Bola cyclone, smashed into the coast of what was then East Pakistan and killed, again, half a million people in the course of a few hours. And over the course of what, over the plot of the book, we just basically trace how that, when it landed on the coastline, its fallout was not only on the lives of the people who drowned on uh, that night, but in the political systems that it crashed into and how that fallout just sort of exacerbated and, and magnified as we went forward in time two years later. And, you know, you can think of it as like a domino effect, right? You have the storm and that flips a major election that was happening in Pakistan. When the election didn't go the way of the established leadership, they decided to retain power by committing genocide, killed three million people in the course of a year. That kicked over into a refugee movement of historic proportions where people are fleeing into India. And then India responds by invading Pakistan. And this war is just, you see this sort of blowing up and this, this constant ratcheting up of violence all the way until we get to the Cold War powers are involved, where India is a Soviet ally, Pakistan is an American ally, and it ends up with a, a moment where we have the Soviet fleet facing off against the USS Enterprise, the capital ship in our arsenal. And uh, we come within an hour or so of firing nuclear weapons at one another. Now, this all starts because of a storm. And, you know, although we can't say, and more would we say that, that the Bola cyclone was caused by climate change, those aren't the sort of statements that we really make in this anymore. But we can say that in a future of climate change where we have increasingly violent and destructive storms, that every one of those storms is a roll of the dice and where it lands and what sort of vulnerable political landscape it lands in. And we're going to be rolling those dice more and more frequently. So the entire book is looking 50 years into our past and saying this is an allegory for what we might expect 
in the future. Jason, as someone who studies peace and conflict, is maybe a theme that I could draw out of this that climate emergencies provide opportunities to escalate conflicts in very severe ways. Is that an okay generalization? Sure. Uh, Yeah, you could say that about any sort of large-scale natural disaster, of which we see more and more of now thanks to climate change. So anytime a storm like the Great Bull of Cyclone or even uh, any other sort of very large-scale natural disaster hits a country, the leadership and the, the, you know, the leaders of that country have a choice. Are they going to help the people who are affected or are they going to neglect those people perhaps for their own interests? And where we see the biggest danger of this, not just in 1970 in East Pakistan, but also today, is when those sorts of storms, when those sorts of events hit ethnic areas of a country that are different than the ethnic leaders of that country. Those are probably the highest risk areas. Uh, And I'd also just like to add with what Scott was talking about, too, you know, as we were doing research for this book, I mean, we did about five, six years of research. You know, we were not only terrified by the way that the Bola cyclone ended up triggering what almost became World War III, but also the fact that this relationship is something that it's really hard for people to appreciate and understand and respect today. Because, you know, you know, we all know there are a lot of really important, powerful climate change books being written today. But a lot of them are from this academic side where they, you know, you're overwhelmed with data. The evidence is overpowering. But the audience for those books is very often people who already believe. And what we wanted to do was go beyond people who read David Wallace Wells, go beyond people who read Michael Mann. And reach those people maybe who aren't as interested or don't really understand or care about wanting to pick up a big, thick climate change book. So this book was written in the, fact, in, the, in the form of a nonfiction action thriller to help people understand what these relationships are through people that actually felt them. But it's still a big, thick climate change book, to be honest. It's 500 <laughs> yeah. pages, so let's just be a little bit of a tone. Yeah. There's an audiobook version of it, too, if you'd like that instead. <laughs> Yeah. Writing this as a creative nonfiction exercise, assuming that's the appropriate genre taxonomy to apply to this, seems like this is kind of made for cinema too. Have you been interested in trying for, to sell those rights? From your lips to Riz Ahmed's ears. Yes. <laughs> um, we, are, we, are de- we are absolutely out here trying to um, turn this into a movie because you know it was what Jason was sort of alluding to. That one of the problems with climate change and, and this narrative that we keep on pushing about it is that we have intense anxiety about something that's very difficult to uh, do anything about outside of like governmental large institution things. And it just feels so hard to do anything. And one of the beauties of the vortex and working on this project is that you see the effects of this storm and people have to take action right now. And, you know, the person who survives the cyclone has obvious things that they need to do. And I think that the era of climate change that we live in, it's mostly about anxiety, right? It's mostly about looking at what's about to happen. And I'm sure it's coming, right? It's, it's, it's going to be here in no time. But it doesn't feel like what you need to do is obvious. Now, if you're actually surviving a storm, the effects are so obvious. Look, I climbed up the tree and now I have to go give food to the people in my island who are surviving. Well, 90% of the island dies. We have to go fight in the revolution. And I, I, I believe and I have this hope that once climate change kicks over into the next step, we're going to be out of the age of anxiety. 
and we're going to be into the age of critical and immediate action. And I don't really see a way out of that. You know, I'm not, Jason, I think is a little bit more optimistic than I am, but I am, for instance, a big proponent of the the Thwats Glacier, the Doomsday Glacier. And I really think that when that thing drops and you see Miami disappear, people are like, oh, climate change is obvious. And like this plays out in my life. This plays out in other people's lives. And then the actions you need to take are going to be real and impactful and immediate. I think this is a powerful story and a good case study to point to. I think a lot of people, when they think about climate change and the dangers of it, it's mostly things like yeah, polar bears or Miami going underwater or something like that. When really you see it as the catalyst for ethnic cleansing, for intergroup dynamics that are truly scary, war, refugee crises, populist backlashes against refugees, stuff. That's really what I'm scared of. Am I correct to be scared of that principally? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important component to this too. So are you right to be scared about it? Yes, absolutely. This is very much underrepresented in what we talk about when we talk about the danger of climate change today. And I think that one of the really important things we bring out in the book is that it doesn't matter necessarily where the original climate event happens. In 1969, East Pakistan was not on anyone's geostrategic radar. Neither the United States nor the Soviet Union cared really much at all about it beyond the beyond caring about every little part of the world as part of the either the domino right. theory or whatever whatever theory you want but what happened is as scott mentioned when larger and larger powers got drawn into the conflict it became a global configuration so the question is does a storm in mozambique today call, have the same sort of potential and we would argue that it does because it's you know when these sorts of storms not only hit places that have you know, as you mentioned, like low socioeconomic development, low state capability, they're also hitting in different places. So Bangladesh, for example, is one of the world's most prepared countries in the world for cyclones now. They've spent 50 years preparing and becoming more resilient to them. But if a cyclone were to hit Yemen tomorrow, they wouldn't be at all prepared in the same way. So that sort of very complicated relationship between a storm hitting and the potential for conflict is something that has been deeply studied in pizza conflict studies over the last 10 years. And that's uh, it's something that there's no like there's no causal chain, which makes it much even harder to get into the media as a because you can't say this storm caused that conflict. But you can say these sorts of storms in these sorts of places cause these sorts of conflicts. It might be too much to introduce, given that it's the bulk of the book or nearly so, but how does this play out geopolitically with the Cold War and the Soviet Union and the US taking sides and all of the political machinations that are happening? And I realize that's probably an impossible question, but give us a taste. So India is a, is a Soviet ally and Pakistan is a US ally. And not only is, is Pakistan just an ally, Yahya Khan, who is this genocidal maniac president, is actually Nixon's probably best friend in the world. And he it has been, so right before the cyclone hits, he's had a meeting with Nixon where uh, Nixon assigns him this special project. He says, you want to be a global player. I have this mission for you. I want to open up trade relations with China. And because of a series of events that we won't get into, Yahya Khan was the only person on earth who was friends with Mao and friends with Nixon. So he was the perfect intermediary between these two men. And, you know, since uh, the Cultural Revolution, Mao had been sort of shut off from trade relations and diplomatic relations with Americans. 
So what Yahya is doing pretty much through this entire book is, is in addition to the horror show with his disaster response and flipping over elections and genocide and that sort of thing, he's also ferrying notes back and forth to Mao between, and Nixon, Nixon going, but he even smuggles Kissinger into China for the first official diplomatic meeting in like 50 years. So this is the sort of the background. And in return, Nixon is agreeing to send arms to Pakistan so that when we get to the point after the storm, Yahya Khan, you know, there's this election that doesn't go his way. And then he starts killing people and he kills the, he kills three million people with American bullets, American tanks, American arms, American planes. And the American embassy who's witnessing this is actually, you know, the, the people in that, sorry, in that consulate are actually, their hearts are in the right place. They're sending out all these telegrams to the world being like, oh my God, there's a genocide going on. And Nixon squashes that. Kissinger squashes it and stops these notes from getting out into the world so that actually the genocide sort of happens below the international radar. So all of this is occurring. And then as the, the pressure ratchets up, and these refugees go out and India finally decides to invade with the help of um, the Mukti Bahini, who are the freedom fighters, who are the, you know, the people who are armed, sort of like our Ukrainian, the people who are, who are defending Ukraine right now. This army flies over the border and, and is about to take Dhaka, which is the capital of East Pakistan at that time. It's about to become Bangladesh. And Yahya Khan says, look, I need to call on my big friend Nixon. And he needs to send in ground troops to um, East Pakistan. And Nixon actually sort of responds to this. He said, Vietnam is waging not so far away. And he sends in the American carrier fleet, the USS Enterprise, which is the strongest military vessel on the planet, has hundreds of nuclear bombs on it, has a, an air wing that could totally eradicate a nation's air force in no time. And that comes steams into the Bay of Bengal with orders to destroy the Indian Air Force and potentially launch nuclear weapons if it needs to. Indira Gandhi, who's the, the leader of India, sends, asks for help, and the Soviets respond as well. And they send in this fleet of submarines and missile cruisers from uh, Vladivostok, and they actually cut off the Americans. And then that we get, get into this very, very tense moment where the the Soviets have said that you will you cannot let the American carriers move past this arbitrary red line in the sea, but they haven't communicated where that line is to the American fleet. And as the USS Enterprise motors forward, the Soviet captain realizes that he's in this really, really tough spot because he has to start World War III if, if they just propel themselves forward a little bit. And he makes what is sorry, tactically a very, very dumb move is he sends three of his nuclear subs, he has actually quite a few vessels under his command, three of his nuclear subs in front of the Enterprise and he surfaces them in front of the Enterprise as sort of like a visual signal to be like, do not pass us. Tactically, that's really dumb. If you're in a submarine, you want to go fire your nuclear torpedoes from you know, secrecy, but he actually um, surfaces them in front and uh, and we have this sort of Wild West gunfight going on in the Bay of Bengal. And the only reason that we don't get to the next step, because Kissinger is saying maybe we should just start lobbying nukes, that we've collected that from the Watergate tapes. The only reason that doesn't happen is because the Mukti Bahini and the Indian forces take Dhaka that day. 
And it's like, oh, well, there's nothing to fight over anymore. And and you and me and everyone here who's listening to this podcast and everyone else you know is alive because those freedom fighters actually took the strategic objective. And it's not a story that we talk about very much anymore. And it's crazy. I think people have probably only heard about this if they've seen the, uh, what's the George Harrison show? The Is it Concert for Bangladesh? Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and that's one of the that's one of the things that's so interesting from at least a historical perspective about this is because in 1971, the fight for Bangladesh was, you know, almost every bit as big in the media as the Ukraine conflict is today. So, I mean, it was on time and Newsweek every single week, especially in the second half of the year. So this, you know, so everyone knew about it. There were I mean, children were doing hunger strikes in Michigan. Guys were hijacking planes in France for the Red Cross to send supplies down. Like people just had, you know, there was this huge outpouring of support for the Bangladeshis. Yeah, you mentioned George Harrison and Ringo Starr. The Beatles, they put the world's first humanitarian aid concert on. And, you know, it was in the public eye and it was something that everyone cared about. But then now, 50 years later, we've almost totally forgotten about it. So, and that's what happens sometimes with with some of these conflicts. We collectively start to lose our understanding and appreciation for the lessons of the past because it, you know, especially now with 24 hour news media, it seems like every three or four years there's a conflict like this and it can be overwhelming. But it's still so important to look into the past if we want to understand the links between conflict, what causes it, and what it can become. I think it's easy in hindsight to look back and be quite cynical, especially with these Cold War alliances. I'm thinking of the U.S. supporting people like Diem in Vietnam or Papa Doc in Haiti and these, or Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, people that are sort of craven, authoritarian, very, very scary people, but at least they're non-communist, right? And the communists, are, of course, are, are not so nice either. And I think that's very clear to say as well. How fair should we be to Nixon and Kissinger? Are they just war criminals and, and terrible people? Or is there more nuance that we should be thinking about this with? One of the interesting things about, you know, the book, of course, but also Nixon and Kissinger in general, is they have thousands of hours of recorded tapes that Nixon recorded himself. So, you know, we don't have to make a judgment about you know, their role in history. They tell us themselves in these tapes what sorts of massacres they want to do, what they feel about certain ethnicities and people and, and the way in which they see the world and the way in which they act gives much stronger evidence to that question that you ask than anything Scott or I could say as far as our perceptions. I mean, you only have to look at the actions that they did during that time in office to be able to make that <laughs> assessment. Yeah, genocidal maniacs with no redemptive qualities. Let's just be clear. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess I caught some whiffs of that <laughs> reading the book. That's how, yeah. how you thought. Yeah. You may hear, you may be able to detect the slight differences between the <laughs> academic and the journalist between the two of us here. Yeah, much more measured. <laughs> Investigative journalists, you guys are known to have axes ready to grind, right? No, I know. I think like like Jason said, there's data that proves it. I mean, yeah. you know, when, when you're when you're willfully aiding and abetting a genocide and you know it's happening and because of your actions, three million people die. I don't think we need to mince words and be more nuanced. I think we just need to say this is genocide and Nixon helped perpetrate it. Like, I don't I don't I don't find that a problematic statement whatsoever. Yeah, you're not interested in rehabilitating his reputation. 
I am not. I am not. <laughs> That's not a research project of yours. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the one of the things I think that comes across in the book too is the you know everyone pretty much everyone knows now that Kissinger did so many evil things in you know Bangladesh and you know most more notably in Cambodia, Latin America, uh, so many different places. But there's always one of the one of the things that I really wanted to get across through his own words is he's not the brilliant strategic thinker that everyone assumes he is. Mm -hmm. He's just a hothead who has the, you know, him and Nixon weren't that different in terms of what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. One of the more important things of the last few chapters of the book, especially is just to show that, that Kissinger was not brilliant here. He was not strategic. He was not forward thinking. He was going by his gut. He was telling Nixon to go lob some nukes. He wasn't the intelligence that is often perceived for him to have wasn't there in 1971, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really interesting thing about history in general is oftentimes we look at leaders and say they knew how it would all pan out, right? It's like some guy in a, in a political office knew how 10 years from now all of those events would fall into their favor. And Nixon and Kissinger actually had a pretty great run up, you know, up until Watergate, where, you know, Nixon is remembered as a diplomatic genius for what he did in China, right? He's remembered that like, wow, I can't believe we have Chinese relations it's because of what he did. But, he, you know, he sort of like thugged his way through a lot of this. And I think a lot of this is happenstance and a lot of it of his reputation is in many ways unearned. Really? That, that Sino-Soviet split, though, is so famous. And I don't think it was a fait accompli or something that was historically inevitable without that sort of vision. But again, I might be way off here. You might correct me. No, I'm not saying that it was would definitely have happened. History does involve actors doing things. But I wouldn't say that that him doing that and the way he did it. I mean, if you're really Machiavellian and you say, OK, well, it was OK that he opened up China relations and that was worth three million lives in Pakistan, then I guess we have a different viewpoint. Yeah. And and I think that you could just add to that, that the fundamental player that made that happen wasn't even Nixon. It was Yahya Khan. And that's what that's what I think is, you know, really interesting about that. It's like Nixon, all Nixon did is make some phone calls and write some letters. Yahya was the one who actually spent those six months at the cost of his own country's solvency to do this for him. And as we show in the book, I mean, there's there's a pretty... Uh, strong anecdotal evidence, at least, that Mao was basically playing Nixon all along because China had so much more to gain by this opening up than the U.S. did if it was on their terms. So did Nixon do something here that was beneficial for the United States? Possibly. But was it more beneficial to other players in the saga? Yes. Why do you think we attribute such superhuman, 10-dimensional chess level skill playing here to someone like Kissinger? Also, relatedly, I remember hearing that about the Trump White House, but then all of the staffers who resigned were all like, no, it's chaos in there. Like, it's, it's, it's not it's not some sort of like deep plan. It's very reactive. It's very driven by the news cycle. Why do we do that? Kissinger's most exceptional skill is uh, being able to promote his own brand. So in that way, it was very much like Trump. I mean, this guy wrote several thousand page memoirs about all the amazing things that he did. He had this great ability to be seen as a thinker. But talk to politicians in a way that made him think like it was his idea, but he could make it their idea, you know, just buttering up people in a way that gave them credit for the idea, but then gave Kissinger credit for the overarching vision. 
this simplifies Kissinger a little bit. Of course, he was a monumental figure in American foreign policy, but his record isn't necessarily one that you would want to be proud of or write a memoir about. He was able to, you know, and he's he's still alive. It's you know when you're when you're <laughs> when you're dead, people tend to then write the more critical, reflective essays. So you know he's he's still there. He's still in foreign policy. He still goes to China. He still talks about developing U.S.-China relations. So since he's still such an active player, maybe this is something we'll see more five, ten years down the line with more critical reassessments of Kissinger's legacy. I might be a bit of a dilettante here, but I associate him quite strongly with its continuity with Kennan, right? And George Kennan's containment. And I don't know that there was a lot. I mean, he struck me as pretty squirrely and pretty smart. Maybe, maybe he's not, maybe he was just blundering through it. Like you might say, but I don't see a ton that was novel relative to just like basic cold war thinking. It depends on who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Course. Like I said, I might be um, yeah, a dilettante yeah, no. here. No, 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 no. That's, that's absolutely true. He was very, he was very influenced by Kennan. Uh, and of course you have this cold war, framework that he was involved in and who acted in but like i think a lot of what a lot of the decisions that kissinger made uh, you know he was looked upon at the time very often as someone who was willing to make those tough decisions as you would say ones that involved killing thousands or millions of innocent people in foreign lands to secure united states objectives So that willingness to do those sorts of horrible things and support those sorts of horrible leaders was viewed in a weird Cold War way as a sort of strength to save the American way of life by destroying anyone who might be interested in going over to the Soviet side. I want to go back to the basic premise of the book here and unpack this a little bit for listeners who may have lost this thread. But what was Yahya Khan's objective in Bangladesh, because he wanted to cover it up for as long as possible and use this moment that he has for increasing the prestige and status or just domination of West Pakistan over East Pakistan. It struck me as really short-sighted. Surely the truth of this would come out and totally backfire. Am I reading history wrong? Is that not the correct way to see this? I don't, it didn't really seem that coherent to me. It just seemed like a crazy gamble. I mean, he plays a lot of poker in the book, so maybe, maybe he's okay with that. I mean, his quote is, I want the land, not the people. And I think that Pakistan had this essentially a colonial fiefdom that they were treating just like the British treated India beforehand. And they were they were taking all the resources out. So it was like this cash cow that he didn't really have to care about the folks who were there. And it was well known and all the protests that had happened before were violently shut down. And this was just a ratcheting up of, you know, maybe this is an insane policy to begin with, right? You know, I, you know, certainly it's not a very good policy, but it was more of an extension of a logic that had already existed and and existing prejudices from these people who were essentially foreigners, even though they were in the same country, but they were essentially foreigners operating the military industrial complex of, of Bangladesh. And you said that, you know, Was there a way he could have gotten away with this? Well, maybe, right? I mean, there are a lot of genocides that happen where those parties still sort of stay in power after they succeed in in quelling resistance. So, I mean, and how many people are really talking about the Bangladesh genocide anymore? I mean, three million people died, right? That's half a Nazi Holocaust, right? That's That's a really, really bad thing to have happened. And yet, 
you don't get those memorials all, all through DC. You don't really have this talked about. Like it's something that is just sort of like forgotten by history. So maybe there was a way that it could have worked. I'm glad that it didn't. I'm glad that India was able to, and, and, and the freedom fighters were able to win. If Indira Gandhi had not invaded, this may have been just the massacre in East Pakistan. I mean, you probably also haven't heard about the massacres in Baluchistan, which is actually in what we think of as Pakistan now, where hundreds of thousands of Baluchis were killed. And again, we don't, we don't remember this. Jason, I'm wondering if you have any lessons we can draw about statecraft and design and capacity that might minimize future incidents like this in light of climate change uh, that will soon be upon us in more increasingly dangerous ways. (laughs) Yeah, and apologies to your listeners. We started with climate change and now we've gone all the way over into 1970s geopolitics. It's, which is it's all connected. A... <laughs> it, it's, it's my show and I want to yeah. know about it. So it's fine. Great. Great. <laughs> we'll, we'll take, we'll take a, a few more left turns and then get back on the right road. No, I think that, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I think that one of the most important lessons that we have right now is something that there was a recent academic article by Tobias Ida, which I think su- summarizes really succinctly. It was a 40-year study of, of, of climate and conflict. And it said that in the sorts of places like we talk about in the book here, like anywhere that has large populations and political exclusion of ethnic groups and, and perhaps underdevelopment, almost one third of the conflicts and wars that have started in those places over the last 40 years uh, were preceded by a climate disaster within seven days. So this is a huge and super important trigger that we are not uh, reflecting upon at all right now. And, and it's so, so important not only to recognize how quickly conflict can start after these events, but the role of local political leaders in either sparking that conflict or quelling it. I mean, we also have, thankfully, we, you know, that is still two thirds of the, of the data set says that that did not happen. And very often that's because political leaders make the choice to help people that are suffering who maybe aren't in their ethnic group. You know, if you think about it, like in the United States, imagine, you know, uh, you know, if, if a hurricane hit Texas right now, there's no question that the Biden administration would help Republican held areas. But, you know, there was that was a big question during the Trump administration. Like, would, would he use the power of the office in order to punish his political opponents in a time of crisis? Thankfully, we didn't have that sort of big example, and America's institutions. Well, are much we sort stronger. of did when they when he he pulled wildfire funding out of California, in in a way, but not to that scale, and not in a way that would trigger conflict between groups in America. So our our institutions are stronger, but that doesn't mean that they are completely immune. And if we keep putting stresses, even in a, in a place like the United States, it can be a trigger for conflict. So that's the most important contemporary lesson, I would say, is to recognize this relationship and to recognize that helping those who are of a different ethnic or political group than your own during these times can make the difference between an event that can bring people together and one that tears society apart. Is there anything that can be done by a listener ahead of time on that besides just talking with people who may not see eye to eye with you on everything, trying to have trans group I don't know, solidarity or at least just affinity? Is there, is there more to it than that? Uh, it's a great question. And, you know, at the individual level, like this was, a, Scott was talking about a little bit earlier too, is like this question of more of climate change in general. 
but also with the Kama conflict link in particular. Do we want to scare people into action? Do we want to say, look, this is going to destroy society unless you <laughs> yeah, make friends with someone across the aisle? Or do we try to tell a story of hope? And we recognize that even in these impossible situations, there are people who are able to achieve the impossible and bring societies together. Now, it's, it's a really difficult question, I would say. I think that at an individual level, you can, of course, support the sorts of people and the sorts of institutions that are designed to not only provide aid after big events, but also recognize the political consequences of it. But I don't know, Scott, do you have any suggestions? I'm a, I'm a little bit stumped on that one. Well, I mean, I think that with many things in this world, it comes down to some level of empathy, which is also the reason why we wrote our book through the eyes of these characters and these people who live through these events. Because, you know, one person dying, that is a tragedy. A million people dying is a statistic. And when you th and, and they, it becomes more sort of a them versus more the subjective understanding of what people are going through. And the way we got onto this book initially is Jason and I were on the Indo-Bangladesh border doing a story for Foreign Policy magazine about a wall that India had built all the way around Bangladesh. Uh, it's a 2,300 kilometer wall. And every kilometer there is an armed guard who has orders to shoot somebody who crosses the border. And people get shot all the time as they cross the border fence. And we came after this 13-year-old girl had died actually on the wall. Her, she was actually caught in the barbed wire and they shot her while she was on the barbed wire. And her corpse hung there for three days as both the Indian uh, border security force and the Bangladeshi border security force were trying to negotiate how to take her down. And we sort of arrived right on the heels of this moment and we're trying to figure out, well, why did India build this wall? And it all traced back to the Bola cyclone, right? It all traced back to the deadliest storm in history when millions and millions and millions of people crossed this border. And so what India has essentially done here is they have said, look, that we know that there's going to be climate refugees at some point in the future. And, and that's their stated purpose. They're like, this is for climate refugees. And they're anticipating uh -huh. that, that this fence will be a critical barrier in stopping that, which is on the face of it, insane, right? If you have millions of people trying to cross a border, a bunch of barbed wire with some armed guards is not the way you should be dealing with that situation. And I think that we, to some degree, we, we need to start looking at other humans as people instead of just objects of damage to our own society. And, and how we solve that, I, you know, I don't know, maybe we all sit around campfire and sing Kumbaya. I mean, that's a possibility. But we can we can start by just telling their stories. And that's that's really what we what I am as a storyteller is we need to get into people's lives and you need to have some level of empathy. And that's going to be one of the many places it starts. And I'll just add to that, especially in the American context. I mean, it, it's not that you think about this just happening in faraway places. You know, a big driver of, you know, of what the Trump administration called the climate caravan or the migrant caravan was driven by climate change. You know, these are these are people coming from Central America who have been forced off of their land for a number of different reasons, many of which are due to slow burn climate factors. So when you have thousands of people trying to get to the United States, what is your level of empathy for those individuals, like Scott is saying? And this is something that very much transcends political lines, because there is 
a relatively strong anti-immigration belief by many people in the United States today. So what what is your opinion of those people? And have you thought about why they are at the U.S.-Mexico border now? And what can we do to help those people both increasing immigration, for example, or also providing more support and aid to the countries that they're coming from to help them adapt and be more resilient to climate change so they don't have to move in the first place. What should bring the humanity more together than climate change, right? I mean, at some point when we talk about the most disastrous outcomes that climate change could wreak on us, whether it is through warfare or even just the, we hit 5C in like 150 years, which is still a possibility, right? You know, at that point, what do your borders mean, right? What does it mean that you that you have a nice little retreat in New Zealand? What does any of that matter? And I think that we need to get a little bit beyond at some point our own selfish, internal looking, short focus mindset and, and get a little bit outside of ourselves and realize that we are all in this together. Yeah, I thought you said you didn't want to get by the campfire and sing Kumbaya, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I don't really like the campfire idea, but I but I do want to say that look what happens in Ukraine right now. Okay, in Ukraine, there you know we we have a pretty clear aggressor here, Russia, right? But in this moment of crisis, a lot of the world, which was very fractured beforehand, you know, the the NATO alliance was getting afraid, you know, the, uh, both sides of, you know, our Amer- America like a year ago was terrible. And now we have this sort of hinting that we're actually, we realize that there are bad things that can happen. And that if we work together, you know, we can do something about it. And I, I there's a great deal of hope right now. You know, it's, it's too bad that this has to happen only through war. But climate change is essentially also a war. Like we're, it's also the stakes really are death and destruction. It causes wars. It will create immense human fallout. And I hope that, that the acute events as they occur, such as, you know, the, the Thwaites Glacier or whatever else, I think that these things can provide, you know, the, the impetus that we need to, to get together and do things, whatever those things might end up being. It doesn't need to be kumbaya. It can just be also self-interest. I'm fine with that. Are either of you willing to speculate about how climate crisis might play out between the countries named in this book, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, China? How might an incident in one of these countries affect the others? Are they are these relationships bad? I imagine Pakistan and Bangladesh probably still are not super close. I know Pakistan and India are famously one of the, if nuclear war breaks out, there's like a one in three chance it starts there. I don't know. Speculate wildly for us. Oh, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious that climate conflicts are enormous there right now, right? I mean, one of the reasons that India and Bangladesh became enemies again, only a few years after after the the, the liberation war where, where Bangladesh got its freedom was over water rights coming down from the Himalayas. You know, China has a border conflict with India as well. I mean, we could absolutely see any number of climate-driven horror shows. I mean, there is no aquifer under the state of Rajasthan anymore. Rajasthan is where the cities of Jaipur and to some degree Delhi is sort of like right next to it. We are in major, major climate crisis. Uh, Salinization is coming up throughout the Ganges River Delta, where, you know, freshwater resources are are in trouble. Yeah, we're going to see stuff. But I will say, here's the note of hope, 
is that when I we asked the um, sort of one of the top climate change ministers in uh, Bangladesh, like essentially your country is in a lot of trouble, right? Like even if you figured out the storm stuff, you've got the the rising tide stuff, which is gonna was messing up people, and everyone is now crowding into Dhaka, which is the fastest growing city on earth right now. What are you gonna do? And and his response. I really liked, which was, we're going to adapt. Of course, we're going to adapt. We're not going to give up, throw our hands into the air and die. We're going to figure this out. And, and I know that there's a lot of people in this climate change space who hate the word adaptation, right? They hate the idea that we have to adapt. No, instead, we just suck carbon out of the air and fix it like utopia t- um, next week. We, that's not going to happen. This is, this is going to be a measured and slow thing. And humans have to adapt. You have to adapt by being empathetic with other humans and, and realizing that these movements of people and changes in economies are going to affect us all. And when, when, when you say it will affect us all, that means you have to change, which means you also have to adapt. And I would just add to that, that, you know, as Scott was alluding to, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a question for rampant speculation for 10 years from now or 20 years from now in South Asia. This is happening right now. This is a question of right now. There are massive heat waves all over the Indian subcontinent right now. Millions of people are migrating from the delta of Bangladesh to the capital because they can no longer grow crops right now. So like all of this is happening and causing societal stress in this exact moment as we are having this podcast. So it's not something where we can think about, oh, well, what sort of thing might happen in the future that can cause conflict? These sorts of conflict actions, both you know between countries, but also more importantly within them, those triggers are being set and they are going off right as we speak. So it's it's so, so essential to not only recognize the relationship between, for example, heat waves and conflict or desalinization or salinization and conflict, but also recognize, as Scott said, that, you know, the adaptation component has to be done immediately. It's not something you can build in over a decade. I found it very plausible in Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future that, you know, once there's a heat wave and I believe it's in northern India, it goes beyond the dew point. People start dying. It's not going to be a surprise when someone roguely starts doing solar radiation management or other adaptation things that are a bit spookier than watching out for rising tides and better cooling systems once that stuff starts happening and the geopolitics of all of that. I find that pretty believable and frankly, pretty terrifying. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, we're all on this ride together. We'll see how it goes. Wow. We forced a little optimism there at the end. Well, we can start wrapping it up here. Is there, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to, or you feel pretty happy with it, both of you? No, I feel like this is great. Uh, you know, I'd love you guys to check out the book. It's called The Vortex. We also have like a YouTube channel. Um, it's on mine. It's SG Carney. And we've got some related videos and content on this and, you know, mailing lists, all of the things that people generally have. We'd love you to check it out and, uh, and appreciate your time. Anything from you, Jason? I'll just copy everything Scott said and say uh, thank you so much for having us on. And we really appreciate the chance to talk about the book and also about you know, this this very tricky and difficult climate conflict relationship, because it's something that I, I think perhaps many of your listeners, especially maybe want to try to contextualize and understand and even do something about. And that's that's really what we're all here for in the end. Well, it's my pleasure. The book is called The Vortex, A True Story of History's Deadliest Storm and Unspeakable War and Liberation. 
Definitely recommend it. I wish more stories like this were being told. I feel like many of the stories do not take this sort of human societal intergroup conflict lens. I think it's really important. It's a great book. There's also a great audiobook version of it too. Thanks so much for listening. Share this podcast with a friend and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.